It's the resurrection that really makes him Lord. You know, there's an interesting thing in, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 6, and most people have never seen this. But it's, if you, when you get down on the level of the Bible where you really start paying attention to every detail in it, and, you, and many of you are getting there, and most of you probably will in time, these are the kind of things that, that I love about the Bible. You know, in the Bible, there is, there's the story that is being told, and that story is told by the person who writes it. But you also notice that there's times in the Bible that, in a particular book, that what the person is saying is not a first-hand account. I mean, he was not there. And what you have in many places in the Bible is a place where the Holy Spirit of God takes over the narrative and says to us and gives us something that if you really pay attention and realize, well, this couldn't be Matthew saying this, Matthew wasn't there. Now, Matthew saw a lot of things, and he wrote about the things that he saw, but there are places in Matthew, there's places in Acts. Every book in the Bible has these, where the guy that's writing was not there to see the event. And it's a time when the Holy Spirit of God takes over the narrative and makes a statement that no man is making. And one of the most unique things I've ever found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 6, is that the first time the narrative of the, of the Bible in the New Testament, which is, in this case is the Holy Spirit of God, the first time the narrative, now many people called him this, and you don't want to confuse that with people and their appreciation of the Lord Jesus. But the first time that the Holy Spirit of God in the narrative calls him Lord, the very first time that the Holy Spirit in the narrative of the book of Matthew calls Jesus Christ Lord is in chapter 28, verse 6, and it does not take place till after the resurrection. You know why? Because he was not Lord till he came up from the dead. And that's one of the great keys of the Bible. And this is why the church at Corinth is having such a problem accepting him as Lord, because ultimately now we know that they're messed up on the resurrection. And so far we have seen how that this great chapter really is the, one of the two definitive chapters in the Bible on the resurrection of Christ. There's so much in this chapter. We now have seen and defined for you the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know what it is now. We have seen and on a weekly basis add to what we already know of the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. And last week, we began to look at the detailing of the resurrection of you and I, man, based on Christ's resurrection. Now, this is a, on a side note, this is a great example of how the Bible really works. The church of Corinth has an issue in every chapter, really. And Paul, as he deals with them, with the problems they have, chapter by chapter... What you see is not only does he get them straightened out and give them, but he gives us also all the great truths that go along with the issues that they have. And it's chapters like chapter 15 where they're messed up on the resurrection. Paul's dealing with them on that. But what comes out of it is our defining and understanding of all the great truths that go along with the resurrection. And as I've said, chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians along with Romans chapter 8 are the two definitive chapters in your Bible uh, on every aspect of the resurrection of Christ. And our resurrection, 
from the dead uh, is laid out through the issues this church had uh, with somebody teaching them bad doctrine. Last week we saw that there's a difference now between man and animals. We saw the difference in a basic way, not a real detailed way, of the soul and the spirit. We found out that there's four different kinds of flesh. We also saw that there's two different kinds of bodies. The Bible talks about a celestial body. That's the angels and all the spiritual heavenly hosts. And then there's terrestrial bodies. That's human bodies, you and I. And along with that, we found that one brings glory to God. That would be the celestial. And the other one always works at bringing glory back to man. That would be us, the terrestrial. And now we know that if you're saved, you have a terrestrial body. This is the problem. We now know that if you and I are saved this morning, we have a terrestrial body that is our flesh and a celestial body that belongs to God, that is our soul, that's sealed under the day of redemption. And those two want glory. The flesh wants glory for itself and the soul wants the glory for God. And this is the battle that you and I are in. It's real simple. It's not hard. You're right now, and we're going to talk about the deliverance of it today, but right now, you and I are trapped. We're trapped. I have the Holy Spirit of God living inside me. I want to do what's right. I want to love God. I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to be everything that God wants me to be. But on the other side, I'm trapped in this vile, filthy, terrestrial body that wants to, it only lives for one purpose. That's to serve itself and do what it wants to do, which is always going to be against what God wants me to do. That's my dilemma this morning. And that's your dilemma this morning if you're saved. We're trapped. We're trapped. And what we're going to see today as he begins to talk about this is we're going to see our deliverance from that. He also said that there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. We saw how that the, the sun is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The moon is a type of the church collectively reflects the light of the sun. But then he brought it down to a personal level when he said the stars. And he says, uh, there's one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, one glory of the stars. And then he says, as one star differeth from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. We tied that back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 33. And now we know that we are a picture in our life. It's like going out on a starry night. You see bright stars, you see medium stars, you see dim stars. And my life and your life today, just like that star. And the Bible says that in the resurrection, God is going to bring about and we're going to see and God is going to judge the different glories between people that claim to be saved, just like we can walk out on a starry night and see the different glories of the brightness of the stars. Now we have a better understanding of all this. And the last thing he said, or last thing we talked about last week, was in verse 43. And it's connected with the resurrection. And here's what he said. Talking about our terrestrial body, he said, it is sown in dishonor. Talking about our terrestrial body, he said, it's sown in weakness. But it's raised in glory. And it's raised in power. See, there's your celestial. It is sown a natural body, but it has raised a spiritual body. And then he says there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, that's really where we're going to be today. 
As we carry this thing on, I want to show you some great truths. I want to show you some great truths about the spiritual body, the terrestrial body, uh, the celestial body, and how it all affects us in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says the natural body is sown in weakness and in dishonor, but someday it's going to be raised in power and glory. Now in verse 45 through 50, He begins a detailed examination of the raising of the spiritual body, the celestial body, our resurrection. And keep in mind, we can't come up till Christ came up. That made him the Lord over the living and the dead. And uh, let's read these verses and see what he says here. And in these lessons and these verses here, uh, you're going to learn all the material you need to understand this thing. Now, here's what he says. He says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And we as have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now, Father, we thank you today for the time that we've set aside to study your word. We ask you, Father, to give us everything that we need to help us to uh, understand these great passages. We thank you, Father, for uh, giving us the Word of God that, that you don't leave us in the dark when it comes to these great things. We thank you, Father, that, uh, that there, for your death on the cross and your coming out of that tomb. Because without that, Father, as we've already looked at it. We already clearly understand we would be lost and still dead in our sin. But because of what Jesus did for us, Father, we thank you for that. And we look forward to learning and gleaning from this. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, verse 45 says, so it is written. And then what he quotes here is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Now, you want to put some of this in your Bible as we're going along. It'll save you some time. But uh, this is not a direct quote. This is what we call in Bible study an added quote. You're going to find there's places in the Bible where he quotes what the guy says directly, word for word. And then you're going to find in places that he says, uh, this is a quote, uh, it was written. And the quote is not exactly what he said because what he does, he takes the original quote and he gives you more information. So you got to get the two quotes together to really understand the concept. Very important in understanding your Bible. But what he says here uh, in verse 45, he says, The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now in your Bible, and I don't know if you're aware of this or not, in reference to you and I, Those of us in Bible basics, I told you how that the Bible is really based on two lines. It's a line of light versus darkness. One line represents God, the other line represents the devil. And I told you that all history is based on, once you understand the plan of God, once you see God moving down through history to accomplish that plan, then you see the devil moving in opposition to stop that plan. That's really all history is. It's really all the Bible is. But within that story... You have the line, two lines for you and for me. And uh, one line represents death. The other line represents life. The one that represents death, that would be Adam's line. 
When you go back in Genesis chapter 5, verse 5, where the first man in the Bible dies uh, in a natural way, uh, you find where the Bible says that, uh, that uh, and he, talking about Adam, and he died. And you're going to find from that point on that everybody in Adam's line dies. Everybody. Everybody, when it starts giving the genealogies of who's who, everybody in that line of Adam dies. Then you have one line that represents life, and that'll be Christ's line. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 15 verse 22, excuse me, 15, 22, it says, for an Adam all die. There's one line. Even so in Christ you all be made alive. There's your second line, you see. The Bible says the first Adam was made a living soul. And you know the story of Adam and Eve. It's not a, it's not a complicated story. It's a very good story. Uh, uh, God made Adam a living soul and gave him uh, the dominion and gave him a mission and gave him all that he wanted him to do. For those of us in Bible basics, we understand God's original plan now, don't we? Well, we should. And we know that God started something with Adam that he wanted Adam to carry on. But oh, we also know that the devil stepped in and, and thwarted that plan and uh, brought Adam down. And then God just moved right on with the next part of the plan and overstepped that. But my point is this. God, uh, the first man was made a living soul. And God had a plan for Adam, but Adam failed. And by his failure, by him disobeying God and doing what he did, he brought death upon all mankind, spiritual death. And that's why his line represents death. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, Adam was created in God's likeness. And the Bible says he was created in God's image. Let me talk to you about that for a moment. Now, the likeness will be the physical appearance of Adam. And the likeness of God is Jesus Christ. And that's why Adam had two legs, a head, two arms, and a torso. Because that was the image of Christ when he came out of the Godhead. And the, or the, the likeness of God. And that's why when Adam is created, he's created in God's likeness. That's his physical appearance. But he's also created in God's image. Ah, that's something different. That's the spiritual side of it. You know, the truth of the matter is, and I don't want to confuse you with this, and I, I don't, you don't want to say this to, to throw you off track, but the truth of the matter is, when you really get it out and deal with it, Adam was the only man in the history of the world that when he was created, he was created with the essence of being born again. He's created as in the, the likeness of God, the physical body. He's created in the image of God. That's the spiritual image. And he's the only man in history and the only man in the Bible that, that was born with a spiritual image of God. That's why he has the keys and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And from Bible basics, we know now. Adam was king over the kingdom of heaven. He was given dominion over all of the physical things. That's God's likeness. But he also was given the dominion over the kingdom of God. And that's the spiritual kingdom. That's because he had the image of God. You want to remember... The likeness of God is always deals with the physical. The image of God always deals with the spiritual. And what happened was very, very simple. Uh, it, it, it's when he lost that image, when he fell, then it caused all the problems. We'll get to that in a moment. You know, there's a strange passage in Luke chapter 3. And uh, you might want to turn to it and follow me through this. Uh, back here you have a genealogy of Christ. And this is the genealogy of Christ going back to Adam. 
And this is very instructive. Now, it's the whole chapter. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I can do what I need to do with just two verses to show you my point here. But follow along with this. It's quite incredible what you have here, I think. Now, it starts in verse 23. Now, what you have here is Christ's human line going back through almost 5,000 years of history. See, this is a lot what people don't know about the Bible. They say, you mean to tell me that Adam and Eve were only lived 7,000 years ago? Absolutely. Well, how do you know that? You just start with genealogies like this. And every genealogy, every year is accounted for in the Bible right back to Adam and Eve in the garden. You're going to see it here. Now look at verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. Now, you ever wonder why God's Holy Spirit throws in things like that? Now, why do I need to know how old he is? I mean, why do I need to know that? I mean, sometimes the Bible puts the little things in there that, that if you look at it, you just, you miss it. And you know why you miss it? Because you don't think it's very important. I'm going to tell you something. That's one of the greatest keys you're ever going to find in the Bible about, he told you that when this thing all began to work out and Christ began his public ministry, that he was 30 years old and he starts his genealogy going back to Adam when he was 30. Let's see what it says. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Notice, was supposed. You need to mark that in your Bible. He wasn't, Joseph really wasn't his father. Which was the son of Helah, which was the son of Methat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Janna, which was the son of Joseph. And then what we have in 25, 26, 27, 28, and I'll spare you all this because I can't say all the names right. And it would just be, uh, you know, all the way down to verse 36, verse 37, you have 5,000 years of history. You have the line of Christ going back to Adam when everybody in the right genealogical place, genealogically going through his, uh, going back through here, and when it comes to verse 37, you're now all the way back to Genesis chapter 5. And if you would go back to Genesis chapter 5, you'll find these names back there, just like you find them here. It's an accurate record. So he starts out in verse 23 with Jesus being about 30 years of age, starting with Joseph, and then runs his line back all the way to Adam. And notice what he says in verse 37. This is very instructive. Get your yellow pencil ready. Which was the son of Methuselah, oldest man in the Bible. Which was the son of Enoch, Genesis chapter 5, was not, and God took him. Which was the son of Jared, which was the son of Mahalil, which was the son of Canaan, here it comes. Which was the son of Enos, here it comes. Which was the son of Seth, here it comes. Which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Now, chew on that for about 40 years. When Adam was made, he looked just like Jesus Christ. You say, what he looked like? I don't know, but it looked like Jesus Christ. What he looked like? He looked like Adam. What Adam looked like? He looked like Jesus Christ. <laughs> When Adam Adam was created, God started his plan with that Adam. And that's why that Bible tells you that he was made in God's likeness, not Jesus Christ, physically. And he was made in God's likeness, spirit, image spiritually, which made him the Son of God. I don't know what to tell you. Now, he wasn't the Son of God in the sense that, that Jesus was. Jesus was still in the Godhead, and Jesus was part of the Trinity. And the way you know that, because when they make Adam... The Bible says, let us make God in our image. So Christ is there, 
I'm not saying that Adam was the Christ. I'm saying Adam was born again, and he was the, the Son of God, just like you and I are the Son of God today if we're saved. We'll get to that in a moment. We'll show you how that all works. Adam was the Son of God. Adam was the Son of God because he bore the image and the likeness of God, and that image and likeness throughout the whole Bible is Jesus Christ. And now we, uh, Bible basics, we, we can start to put this together. We know this is the beginning of God's plan. Ah, oh, but Adam fell. See? And then the devil comes in on a situation, Genesis chapter 3. Remember now, all the Bible and all history is God moving in one direction to accomplish the plan. So he made Adam in his image and his likeness and put that thing whole together. And the devil moves in, in, the, in the, to wipe it all out. In Genesis chapter 3, he falls. And we know now that that's the whole plan, how it works through the Bible. Adam fell. Adam fell for the devil's plan in Genesis chapter 3. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Where, but Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, that'll be Adam, and death by sin, that'll be his disobedience of God, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Now that's, that's the concept. When Adam sinned, he lost the image of God. And now Adam is in a fallen image. He lost the ability to communicate with God. That's why they ran and hid. That's why now, before that, they were naked and were not ashamed. Now they know they're naked. What do they do? They run out to a fig tree and try to make aprons to cover their nakedness. They know now. They've they've lost the innocence. And Adam had a perfect uh, nature where he had fellowship with God. But now it's gone. And because death came to Adam because of disobedience, that you and I are in the line of Adam coming down through this thing, and that's why death passed upon all men. That's why you and I were born sinners. We were born with our father's likeness, but the devil's image. And that's why the Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 44, Ye of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye shall do. He was the murderer from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3 and 4. And abode not in the truth. Somebody said, well, I don't like being told I'm in the devil's family. Good. Get out of it. Get saved and join God's family. It's real simple. No reason to get your nose better than a joint. Let me say what God said to to Cain. Why has thy countenance fallen? You don't like being in the devil's family? That's offensive to you. Get saved. Get out of that stupid family and get in the good family. That's all you got to do. Now, you see, we're down dead in trespasses of sin. If you're going to study your Bible, you're going to find out from here on, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, if you're watching very carefully. From here on, remember now the Bible says that before the fall, Adam, uh, Adam was made in God's likeness and in God's image. And if he'd have got the tree of life and he'd have had eternal life and that thing would have worked out, then he would have had kids because the woman came out of him he would have had kids and produced kids in a sinless environment, and those kids would have been in God's likeness and God's uh, image. Ah, but when sin came in, he lost the image. And now the earth is thrown into a curse, isn't it? Now death is passed upon all sin, all men, because the wages of sin is death. So it tells us in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, after the fall, from here on, Adam produces kids, and it says it very clearly. He produces kids in his likeness after his image, the fallen image. And that's why you and I were produced in the image of our father, physical father, in the likeness. 
the image is our spiritual father, the devil, because of what Adam happened and took place with Adam. It's real simple. Because you got two lines in the Bible. One line represents life. One line represents death. Adam's line will always represent death. God's line will always represent life. Now, the Bible says in our text that Christ, the second Adam, that's very important that you see that, the second Adam, he represents life. And this will be eternal life. Verse 45 says, the first Adam made a living soul, the second Adam made a quickening spirit. Now, this is where you're going to get a little Bible work in. Now, in your Bible, you watch the words quicken, quick, quickening. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says that Christ was put to death in the flesh, see, but quickened by the Spirit. Here it says, the first Adam was made a living soul, the second Adam made a quickening spirit. Wherever you find the word quicken, quick, quickening in the Bible, it'll always be a reference to your salvation. It'll always be a reference to you getting saved. It always will. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, you'll find the same basic verse, and it says that God's coming and going to be ready to judge the quick and the dead. The quick will be saved people. The dead will be unsaved people. Hebrews chapter 4, that's a great verse, in verse 12, talking about the Bible. It says, for the word of God is quick, see, and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of the sunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and to the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's quick. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all sins, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us. So when you find those words in the Bible, they mean salvation. So it's talking about, it's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. He not only resurrected himself from the dead, but now he also has the power to quicken us and to raise us from the dead. And when you got saved, you were quickened spiritually. Well, we'll talk about that here in a moment. Now, there's a great concept taught throughout the Bible, and the quicker you learn this one, the more the Bible is going to become even more exciting for you than it already is. And that is the great concept taught throughout the Bible that it's never the first one, it's always the second one. It wasn't Abel that you find in the line of Christ, it was the second birth, Seth. It wasn't Ishmael that brought forth the, the blessing and the nation of Israel, it was the second birth, Isaac. It wasn't Esau, but it was Jacob. It wasn't Moses that got them into the promised land, but it was Joshua. It wasn't, it wasn't Amalek uh, uh, that was the right husband for Ruth. It was Boaz. It wasn't Saul that was the right king. No, it was the second one, David. It wasn't Peter that, that brought us the gospel. It was Paul. It's not the Old Testament where you find the truth and the words of eternal life, but the New Testament. And with the second coming of Christ, it's not the Antichrist who comes seven years before. It's the second one, the Lord's Christ, when he comes back. And my dear friend, it's not your first birth that gets you to heaven. It's your second birth. And all through the Bible, you'll find that talked about that it's always the second. It's always the second because ye must be born again. And in our text on understanding the resurrection, it wasn't the first Adam that brought eternal life. It wasn't the first Adam that paid, got through with it. 
wasn't the first Adam that didn't fulfill what God wanted him to do. It was the second Adam. And it won't be your first birth. Your first birth will put you in a line of death. It has to be your second birth that puts you in the line of Christ. And he is life, a quickening spirit. You know, there's some incredible parallels in the Bible about the first Adam and the second Adam. I think personally it's one of the greatest studies in the Bible. In all of my years in the Bible and all the things I've concentrated on, this is probably one of the most concentrated areas that I, uh, I've just been captivated by. And it's the, uh, it's the uh, studying the incredible parallels between the first Adam and the second Adam. You know, you don't have to turn to this right now because I don't want to turn this into a theological lesson this morning. But in Judges chapter 9, there's a strange passage. Judges itself is a strange book. But in the Judges chapter 9 is a very strange passage. And it's a strange passage and it talks about four trees. And the goofy thing about this is that these four trees are vying about who's going to be king. Now, historically, you can put it into a context because these four uh, trees represent the four people back in Judges that want to be king, and the guy who winds up being king is Obimelech. So you can historically put it in to that kind of deal and try to get yourself oriented to it pretty well, but then it only gets worse. Because as you come down and you read this, you're going to find that these four trees are found in the Garden of Eden with the first Adam. And each one of these trees represents something that is a major thing in the Bible. And if that wasn't enough, all four of these trees are found in the first coming of Christ with a second Adam. And it makes the parallel absolutely something that you could spend the rest of your life studying. And that, it, we've got a vine tree here. And that vine tree, well, if you take the time to study it, will wind up being the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it was forbidden for them. And the only forbidden group, only forbidden fruit in your Bible found, is found in the book of Leviticus, and it's off a vine tree. And you'll find that when the second Adam is on the cross, they gave him, wanted to give him wine, and he would not take it. There's a reason why he would not take it, and it's found back in the Old Testament. That'll be a little something for you to look for. I'll ask you Thursday night if you found it, why there's a reason why he didn't take it. Then in the, in the first Adam, you have an olive tree. And that olive tree was the tree of life. You know, in Romans chapter 11, Christ is called an olive tree. Somebody says, well, what was, the, what was the tree of life? What was it back? It was an olive tree. It was an olive tree. And from olive tree, you get olive oil. And olive oil uh, comes uh, in a place where you want to get the purest form. It's called what? It's called what? It's called what? So when God wanted to get the purest form of a man, he got it from a who? Also, now you go out and buy a nice sweater. You get a sweater. That's, what's the nicest material you can get a sweater in? You've been shopping at Walmart way too much. It's wool. Where do you get wool from? Uh, who? This is not complicated. Where do you get wool from? The purest form of wool is what? So when you got a lamb that was come by the Holy Spirit of God in its purest form, it had to come through a virgin. So what you got is you got an olive tree. Christ is the tree of life. He's called an olive tree over in Revelation chapter 11. Then you had a fig tree. You had a fig tree. Oh, by the way, Christ then is in, when he's over there in the Gospels where he prays, he's in the Mount of Olives called Garden of Gethsemane. 
Then you have a fig tree back with the first Adam, don't you? And that fig tree is where they went and they got the, they got the fig leaves to cover their nakedness. Now, <clears throat> fig leaves in the Bible will always be a picture of, of man's self-righteousness. And that's why when you get over in the New Testament, when Christ came out and he saw a fig tree that had no fruit on it, he cursed that fig tree. See, you had one with the first Adam, you had one with the second Adam. Had an olive tree with the first Adam, you had an olive tree with the second Adam. You had a vine tree with the first Adam, you had a vine tree with the second Adam. And then the fourth one, uh, fourth one was a bramble. And we find brambles back there after the fall because the Bible says thorns and thistles. See? Now, in our story, this is where it gets really weird. In our story, of these four trees wanting to be king, you know who becomes the king? The bramble. And the bramble represents Abimelech, type of the Antichrist in the Bible. Am I getting too complicated for you? So where do you find the bramble when Christ shows up? They made him crown of thorns. You see? It became king back there. Obimelech, the devil, so the devil put his crown on our king on that cross. Incredible stuff. I mean, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. But I'm talking about some parallels between the first Adam and the second Adam. Watch, they're both called the Son of God. They both have God's likeness. They both have God's image at one point. They both are 30 years old when they start their ministry. Oh, yeah, that's why that 30 years old is back there. Christ had his... Christ had his, when he was 30, he started his 30, three and a half year ministry. I don't even want to get into how that relates back to Adam. We'll be here all morning. They both have a mission from God. They both look at as God their father. They both have communication with God. Do you ever notice that they both have a help meet? Adam didn't have a help meet. So God put Adam to sleep. He died. And out of his fifth rib, he brought a woman. And manufactured a woman and gave it to Adam and she's his help meet. So he had to die for that woman to come forth. So when, that's his help meet. So when Christ was on the cross, he died. And that old Roman soldier put that spear right through the fifth rib. And his help meet came forth. The church. Oh, I'm telling you. We got something going here. And in both cases... In both cases, in Genesis chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in both cases, when the devil comes after Eve, he tries to disrupt and take from her what God said and try to tell her God didn't know what he was talking about. And when the devil attacks the church today, he tries to tell you that old King James Bible you've got in your hand is old archaic and no good anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nothing like a Bible to clear up a seminary education. But when the true test comes, here's the, here's the caveat. I don't know what caveat means, but I heard that this week, that this is the caveat. Everybody's, listen. So I hope it's not a dirty word. I hope it's not something to do with a stripper someplace. It's, it's, here's a caveat. I, I'm rolling the dice on this one. Is that like caviar? I, I, I don't know. What's caviar? When the test comes, and they're both tested, get this. They're both tested in a garden. The first Adam's tested in the Garden of Eden. The second Adam is tested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And where the here it comes, where the first Adam failed in the garden and sinned in the garden, 
and forfeited the tree of life, not only himself, but everybody down through history and brought sin on all men. The second Adam, praise the Lord, prayed through in the garden, became the tree of life for all men, and brought life through the second Adam, which the first Adam brought death. You got it. See how that thing works? Now, the second part of our text, once we get that under our belt, it now focuses on the resurrection body that you and I are going to get. And we're going to pick it up now in verse 46 here of 1 Corinthians 15. We just talked about verse 45. How be it that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Now we understand all this now, you see. The first Adam represents earth, earthy, terrestrial. That's you and me. The second Adam represents life. He's the Lord from heaven there in verse 47. Now here it comes. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthy. That's you and me before we were saved. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. That's you and me now after we're saved. Now here it comes. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now that verse says that someday, just like you and I are trapped in this terrestrial body, but we're saved on the inside, there's coming a day when God is going to resurrect us and we are going to get the glorified body that Jesus Christ had and we are going to have everything that God wants us to have. The great chapter that goes along with this is Romans chapter 8. This is the other two chapters that define this one. And you'll remember the book of Romans when we taught it to you. I told you that Romans is the handbook of Christian doctrine. It is everything that you and I need to understand about everything God is trying to do and accomplishing through the church from beginning to end. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul teaches us about two resurrections, doesn't he? Two adoptions. We talked about it in great detail. Romans chapter 8 shows us two adoptions, which are the two resurrections. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 15 is the first adoption. And this is the day you got saved. He says, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again. See that thing? He's talking to saved people. And he's saying, you haven't received the spirit of bondage. You see, that spirit's a small word spirit, small s. That is man's spirit. That is the spirit, that human spirit that we all have that wants to take the glory from God and put it on man. And he says, now that you're saved, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. You see, that spirit, your human spirit, that's where your problems are. That's where my problems are. That's where our fears are. That's where our our failures are. That's where uh, all of the things in life that we yield ourselves to that are endless and dead-end streets and bring us disappointment and heartache. He says, you've been delivered from that and you should not go back to that kind of bondage. But you have received the Spirit. Now there it's big ass, like Superman on his chest. But ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, want to mark this in your Bible, is a title like Great Father or a great title of distinction and greatness. And he's saying that this adoption is a spiritual adoption. And it's the day you and I got saved. The day you and I got saved, your soul 
was sealed, Ephesians chapter 4, with the Holy Spirit of God, and God separated you from your flesh, and He adopted your spiritual nature, and He gave you His image sealed within your soul. But you still got your old nature, don't we? And that's what he's talking about there. He knows that and he's telling them, look, why are you letting anybody, anything, put you back under the bondage of your physical spirit once you've been set free and delivered by the Spirit of God? Now, folks, I want to tell you something very honestly and very plainly today. And I know you're probably all saved and most of you are all going to heaven. But I want to tell you something. Saved or not, there's two roads you go in life in a physical way. And that one road is going to be to go with the world and the things of the world and the people of the world. Some are saved people. Some are unsaved people. Hey, God's people, if there's anything I've learned, I've learned that there's no difference with most of God's people between the sacred and the secular. And you find some of God's people that live do the same things that, that the unsaved people do. And that road is going to lead you to spiritual disaster. You get on that road with them, And the Bible says, we say, well, I'm just, how can two walk together except they be agreed? You go down that road and it's a road of disaster in your life, disappointment, and at the resurrection you're going to shine with no brightness whatsoever. The other road is the road of the new nature. The road of the spirit that sets you free from that bondage, that quickens you. And this is why it's so vitally important to see this. Now, Romans chapter 8, verse 23 is the second one. And this is really what we want to talk about today. And this one here is a great one. And this one here basically says, Romans 8, verse 23, And not only they, but ourselves also, which are the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, let me talk about that. If you put this note in your Bible, here's a little another term you find. First fruits of the Spirit. You're going to be discipling somebody. You're going to be doing something or somebody's going to ask you, what is the first fruits of the Spirit? And be, here I am, I want to give it to you. And you're not going to write it down. You're going to say, I'll do it later. And you won't do it later because the Chiefs are playing this afternoon. And so what? <laughs> and, and you're going to forget about it. And you won't get it down instead of putting it in right now. The first fruits of the Spirit, that little term simply means that you and I of the church age Christians are the first fruits that the Holy Spirit of God produced after Christ resurrected himself. That's all. You and I are the first fruits of the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit of God's job is twofold, isn't it? It convicts of sin and it bears fruit. And the first legitimate fruit the Holy Spirit of God bore after the resurrection was the church. And you and I are in that church. So it says, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. See, that was the second adoption. It was one in verse 15, is one in verse 23. Definition, to wit, here it comes, this adoption, the redemption of our body. See? Now, if you're really on fire for God this morning and in fellowship with God, I don't know how else to say it. You ought to just be chomping at the bit for that thing to happen. If you're really plugged in today, uh, you know what? Uh, and I'll tell you what the devil does, and I know it's true. And this is not a criticism toward anybody, but I'm just telling you it's true. We live in this God-forsaken world, and we hang out with the filthiest things and the filthiest people and all kinds of things that try to drag us down and kill our zeal for God. And I'm telling you, everywhere you go, everywhere you look, everything you get involved in, you got to be careful of because the design today is to stop you and me from doing whatever God wants us to do. And I'm just telling you, 
I'm just telling you, that's what you and I have to look out for. And uh, you ought to be absolutely what he's saying right there. It, it ought to be the thing that you're looking for to live you. He says that we groan within ourselves. You know what that means? That means you're dying to get out of this filthy world and home to heaven. Now, if that's what we should be doing, how come you and I are enjoying it so much? How comes the things we talk about, if God would put all our words at the end of a day in a category, we find 5,000 words about everything else and about three or four words or maybe nothing about Christ. See, that's the problem. One adoption is for your soul. That's in verse 15. Verse 23 is the adoption coming for your body. And uh, it's, a great, it's a great thing, and that's what we need to be looking forward to. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, too. Now, in Christianity, you've heard me talk about this before, you have a heresy of what we call predestination. And I'm not going to get into it in a long dissertation this morning, but basically uh, the heresy, heresy, heresy of predestination is the fact that God predestined some people to be saved and some people to be lost. Stupid. I've never met anybody who believed in predestination who ever knew anything about the Bible past the ABCs of the Bible. And uh, it's, we don't have time to mess with it this morning, nor should we even give it the time. Uh, we've talked about it before. But Romans chapter 8, verse 29 is your definitive verse on predestination in the Bible. And it simply says this, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, in the Bible's definition, predestination had nothing ever to do with salvation. You're not predestined to be saved, but after you are saved, 829 says, then from that point on, you are predestined to get God's body just like Jesus Christ. That's predestination in the Bible from a Bible sense. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be saved, no, to be conformed to the image of his son. See, there's a difference in getting saved and being conformed to the image of his son. How do you know that? Because there's two adoptions in Romans chapter 8. You missed them. The predestination has to do with the adoption of your body getting conformed to that image. Now, I know we all struggle with things in life. I do. You do. We're human. Uh, We're living in a tough time. I'm just telling you that. But I want to talk to you about what he said here. When he said that we groan within ourselves waiting for this resurrection, the deliverance. In the preceding verses, and I didn't even get into it, he talked about that the animals themselves groan because they, they, you know, animals are an incredible thing in the Bible. You know, of all of God's creation, of all God's creation, of all God's creation, the only ones who disobey God are man. You know why when you hunt deer, deer, you get up in a deer stand? Because deer never look up. You know why they never look up? Because in the Bible, looking up is associated with a proud look. We look up. They never look up. So they're stupid and run into your bow and arrow or your gunfire. But the bottom line is, God made them in a submissive form. Do you ever see a mama a deer or a mama whatever, bear or whatever, leave her family and leave her cub for somebody else to raise? You mess with a mama she-bear boy, I'll tell you what, you'll find out what it's all about. It's only man that does those things. Well, I've seen geese when they mate up and they partner up and one of the geese gets shot. I've seen that, that other goose just stay there where that other one was and not leave them. They understand what it means for better and for worse. 
But God's people never figured it out. I'm telling you. And keeping our biblical perspective in our lives, that's, that's the key. And we talk about victory in Jesus. What a joke that is. I mean, we ought to change the words and play defeatism in Jesus because that's where most of God's people are today. And yet, this is, please, this is not a criticism. I understand the trials of this life. I do. I understand what many of you go through. I mean, I had been in the Bible for 40 years, and sometimes it, it, it gets so hard on my shoulders, I, 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 it just, you just want to scream. So I know what it must be for some of you who, who your last 40 years have been a disaster, or last 20 years have been mistake after mistake after mistake. And I applaud you the fact that you're trying to claw your way out. And please, this is not a criticism in any way, shape, or form. If anything, this is an admonishment toward you. But I'm telling you, I understand how hard it is today to get out of that mess that we're in. There's a lot of pressure. The devil seems at every turn of the corner, doesn't he? He wants to turn victory into disappointment. He knows just when you come up the bat when to throw you the curveball, doesn't he? He knows when you're running to second base or third base, first base and you're going to get on base. He knows when to get that ball there just a little faster than you and call you out. He knows, the, I understand the heartache. I understand the heartache that a lot of God's people go through. I understand the trials. I do. I do. And, you know, one of the things that I always focus on in my life is the fact that but we're pilgrims in a strange land. And I'm just passing through here. I know I got a house and I got a couple of cars and I got a dog and I got a backyard and I get fenced in and I got possessions and I got a TV set, but I don't have my roots down here. I don't know of anything I have today or any plans that I have. Now, I'm planning on going to the homeless place tonight because <laughs> I'm feeling a little homeless myself this morning. And I'm going to a birthday party this afternoon. I'm looking forward to that. And my week is filled with going things with people, you know, and, and, and our church family. And I love doing that and, and all those things when I can. And it's always fun. And I'm really, we got sandwiches out there and cookies out there. And I got the water all bought. It's all, ladies did a great job of thinking all those things. But you know what? If the Lord come any time now, it'd be okay with me. Amen. The devil's crowd can have the water, have the sandwiches. They can have the stale cookies. <laughs> They're not stale. I ate one the other day. They're really good. They can have everything out there. They can have all the Ruckman books they want. They can have, they go to my house. They can hope they feed the dog, but they can do whatever they want to do. You see, there's nothing on my agenda that I wouldn't give up in a flash heartbeat for that resurrection body. You know why? Because the source of all my problems is this old world. The source of my groanings, the source of my disappointment is this old world. And I'm about as sick of it as I can get. I'm sick of the world. I'm sick of the, uh, the people in the world. I'm sick of God's milk toast, mishy mouth people in the world. I'm just sick of the whole thing. The only thing that's going to fix this is a good toilet flush, and that's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. But I understand. I understand why good people suffer. You see, God's grand plan from Bible basics now, we know it was, don't we? God's great overall plan was never about this life, was it? And see, kids, when you know these things, when you grasp these truths, 
You don't ever want to make the mistake of deceiving yourself to ever try to encourage yourself about anything in this life. Now, that's hard, isn't it? People get married. Weddings are a joyous occasion. And there's not anybody on planet Earth that I've ever met that didn't take the wedding to the hilt. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I think you ought to have a nice wedding. It's, you know, I think it's supposed to be the only one you have. I think it's, 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 it ought to be the best one you have. But, but it's easy to get caught up in that one and forget about that one. See? Having kids are great. And we all, you know, we all get excited when so-and-so is going to have a baby. And we're all excited when so-and-so finally has the baby. <laughs> We all get excited when so-and-so brings the baby. And there's okay. But you know what? In reality, that baby just got born into the worst situation that it can ever be born in. Not because of your parents, but because of the world that we live in. I've actually had parents, I don't think this is a good reason for not having kids, but I've actually had parents say, I don't want to have kids because I don't want to bring them into this rotten, rotten world. And now I understand that. I understand. I understand. My point is, you'll never have the victory of God as long as you keep looking for things to encourage yourself in this life. At some point in your world, my dear friend, you have to begin to encourage yourself in the next one to come. Romans chapter 8, that great chapter in verse 17 says, If children, that's us, you and me, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Jesus Christ. See, you can encourage yourself with that. That Bible says I'm going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That Bible says that right now my soul is sealed and saved, the first adoption, but I'm sitting here putting up with all of this filth, putting up with all of this crap, putting up with everything I've got to put up with. Lackadaisical people, God's people who don't want to do one thing for God, worldly people who hate God and everything about it, and they stand and start contrast to everything I believe, everything I love, and everything you should believe and love. But one of these days, we're going to be delivered from that. One of these days, brother, it's going to take place. And those are the things. One of these days, you know what? I don't want, I, I don't expect anything from the judgment seat of Christ. I made enough boneheaded things in my life, and I'm sure that when I get there, I, you know, I, I don't expect to have any rewards. I really don't. And I'm not do it for that. I don't even think about that. But I'll tell you one thing I do want. It's the only thing I want. And it's the only thing I care about. He can take all my rewards and he can give them out to whoever they want. But the only thing I want is when I walk up before him and I pull out that sword, and brother, it's going to have some nicks on it, it's going to have some rust on it, it's going to have some cuts on it, it's going it's to be battered and beaten. But all I want to do is lay that sword down at his feet, and the only thing I want, the only thing I want is him to look down at me and just say a couple of short words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's all I care about. That's all I'm looking for. That's all I want out of life. I want to be able to lay that old battered, broken sword down at his feet and step back and highball him and said, I did the best I could. I failed. I failed miserably. I made a lot of dumb things. But at the end of the day, I still had that sword in my hand. Amen. That's all it's about. And one of these days, the Bible says that you're going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. What's that do for you? I mean, you come in and you say, wow, I just won the lottery. Wow, I won a car. Wow, I won a trip to here. Wow, I won this. Wow, someday you're going to be glorified with him. Amen. Amen. It means nothing today. 
And then he says, if, if so be that we suffer with him, that we, shall, we should be glorified together. Now there's the key. But if so be that we suffer with him. Suffering what he suffers. Suffering for his sake, not our own stupidity. Suffering with him. We should be glorified together. You see, if you want to share the glorification, do you? Do you want to shine like the sun and the stars of heaven? There's only one way to do it, glorified with him. That is to take the suffering with him right now. And here it comes. Here it comes, verse 18. My favorite verse in the Bible that I encourage myself. He says, for I reckon... For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You're supposed to suffer with him, for him, through him. And when you stand before him, the glory that is in you right now is going to be manifested in a physical resurrection of a glorified body, and you're going to be glorified with Him, and then, and then, you're going to see what you ought to be able to see right now. That whatever you got to go through to fulfill God's mission in your life, whatever you got to do, whatever you got to get out of your life, whatever you got to get away from, whatever you got to quit, whatever you got to let go of, will be worth it when you stand there and look back and see that it didn't matter in this life. It was all for naught. It meant nothing. All your money, all your possessions, everything you got is nothing. Only what you did for him. Shown in corruption, raised in glory. Shown in weakness, raised in strength. Shown a natural body, raised in a glorious body. The body of Christ. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. This is why God's people, this is why they don't get it, bless their hearts. This is why they struggle. This is why they get down. This is why they lose their fire. This is why they let disillusionment and disappointment and all the things that pull them back. And why wouldn't we? We live in this rotten, godless world. It all stands for naught and it all against God. There's nothing good in it. The Bible says that life on planet earth is like a bag with holes. There's absolutely nothing good that comes out of it. And yet we will not, we will not, not focus on this old life and focus on what's coming. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 through 3, probably on many of your prayer cards. It says, if we then be risen with Christ, seek those things which were above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And then it says this, and here's the key, folks. Set your affections on things above, and not on things on the earth. For you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now there's the key. Setting your affections. And there's also the problem, isn't it? Set your affections on things. There's our problem. You're either going to set your affections on the things of this world with the natural man, or you're going to set your affection on things of God in the spiritual world. 
You're either going to set your affections on things that deal with the first Adam, the dead-end streets of life, or you're going to set your affections on the endless hope of a glorious resurrection and an eternity with God. And that's the problem. God's things versus man's things will always lead to giving man the glory instead of God. Man's things will always get glory to man. God's things will always get glory to God. And then the last thing I want to say very quickly is I want to leave you with a great verse. I think this is one of the greatest verses on the body and the resurrection we're going to get at the body of Christ, Christ's glorified body. Uh, in our present, I think it's the greatest single verse found in 1 John chapter 3. We'll move through this very quickly here. But this is some great stuff. <clears throat> and it's these kind of things, folks, that you have to encourage yourself in. You see, we're up against it. You go to work all day with the world. Everything you watch on television is the world. Everything you do in life, everything you read is against God. Even most of the God's people that you hang out with are against God. They do their own thing, and they pull themselves up as Christians. And all that pulls on you. It all pulls on you. And I'm telling you, the only way to handle it is to start to encourage yourself with not what is now, but encourage yourself with what's coming. There's something better coming. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and you need to mark this in your Bible. I'm going to break this down into six points. You need to get these six points out of this verse. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The first thing he says in point one is he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Do you have any idea what it took for your salvation to take place? Do you have any grasp of the concept of what God had to do? That really, in essence, if you want to look at it this way, he designed everything in that Bible from beginning to end around your salvation and my salvation. That if you really want to take it to the nth degree, that God, through the whole 7,000 years of man's history, 6,000 years of man's history, with some, all the writers and all the authors and all the things that they had to go through and all the things that they struggled with to put a Bible in form, that God had to preserve it through a, a thousands of people's lives uh, for you to have it, that you could actually look at that and think that God just did that for you. Why do we get so indifferent to the one who died for us? Why, <clears throat> the Bible says, <clears throat> behold. You know what behold means? <clears throat> look at this. Behold. He's, he's showing it out to you. It's like you got some, some great picture you want to show somebody that you painted or some great thing that you wrote and it, you keep it under wraps or some statue commemorating somebody and you pull it off and you show it and bring it for the first time everybody sees it and you say, behold. That's what he's doing. Do you ever stop and behold what it cost, what it, the price was, what it took for God to get you and me to the place where he would save us? Do you realize the, that everything in the Bible goes toward that direction? I mean, I know God's people have a, a tendency, and I myself, to be ungrateful. But come on, man. 
No, you actually, and I know, you know, right now you grasp it, and right now you probably feel like a sheep-killing dog, and you really feel bad, and that's good. But you know what really bothers me? 15 minutes from now when you get the Chiefs on and you see what the score is or you get a phone call from somebody, this is all going to be gone. You'll be right back into what pulls you down all the time. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Behold, what manner of love. What manner of love. Do you, want to, do you comprehend the, how much God loves you? Do you comprehend how much little we love him back? We want everything from God. We give nothing back to him. God made the sacrifice to us and gave us everything. If we do do anything for God, we work it at our schedule and make it so it's convenient for us. Behold, behold what manner of love. And it all comes back because we don't encourage ourselves. We're not looking for what's coming. Then he says, point two. <clears throat> Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, because of what he just said, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. You know, there's two kinds of world that hated Christ. Did you ever notice that? The first one was the unsaved world. And we can understand them. But the second one was the religious crowd, the scribes and the Pharisees that make up the mixed multitude. They hated him too. Did you ever stop and wonder why the second coming of Christ, <clears throat> why he's going to come down and take it by force? Did you ever reason it out? He comes down in an army, kicks the snot out of everybody and takes it by force, kills anybody that's in his way. Do you know why he does that? Because the first time he came, he didn't come that way. The first time he came, he came down to reason with people. He wanted to, them to behold the love that he had for them. And, uh, and they killed him. The world hated him. God's people hated him. You know, if Jesus Christ came down today and started a church down the street, in three weeks' time, they'd want to get rid of him and hate him and be against him, just like every other pastor that stands on the Word of God. You know why? Because if you're really doing what's right and preaching the book, he'd be preaching the same thing that any pastor ought to be preaching. See, it's, it's nice to talk about I love Jesus. It's nice to talk about how sweet he is and, oh, he's my Lord and Savior, and yes, I love him. But it's something else when push comes to shove that your will's got to go up against his word. And that's where it really is. That's where it really is. So he's not coming back the, first, the way he did the first time. See, the first time they took his lovely son who came down and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, John the Baptist. And they took him and they beat him and they spit in his face. They ridiculed him from one moment to the next. They were like dogs after him and everything that he did. Finally, they took him, they beat him, they whipped him, they spit in his face, they pulled out his beard, and then they took him and put him on a cross and put nails to his hands and his feet, hung him up to the crowd, stripped him naked, and then threw a spear in his side and then made fun of him. So he ain't coming back that way next time. Why do you work it so hard at being friends with the world? May I ask that to you today? He says, therefore, the world knoweth him not. The world knoweth you not because it knew him not. Why do we work so hard at being with the world? Why do you have friends who claim to be Christians that hate everything about God, the word of God, and you just have to stay in that relationship and just love them so much? When they hate the very God and the very Bible that you stand for, they just ain't got enough guts to say it. I mean, is the verse not plain? Maybe we better go to the Greek. 
It says, therefore. What's the therefore? Because of the manner of love that God hath bestowed upon us. Therefore, the world knoweth us not. Does the world know you as a friend? It didn't know him as a friend. Does it know you as a friend? I mean, we all have friends who are unsaved. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your intimate crowd that have a, I mean, instead of you having a direct impact on them, they have a direct impact on you in a negative form. Why do you work so hard at wanting to be friends with people who want nothing to do with church, nothing to do with Bible, nothing to do with God? Then he says, point three, beloved, now are we the sons of God. See, right now, because of your first adoption, right now, because you're saved, right now, because you have passed from death into life, right now, because you have been quickened, right now, because though the first Adam brought sin into the world, you accepted the second Adam who got through the garden and became the tree of life, and now you're saved. And right now, Right now, as we speak, if you're saved this morning, right now, right now, based on the love that God has for you, right now, based on that salvation that God gave you, right now, as we sit here, you and I, if you're saved, we're the sons of God. Now, here's the problem. Point four. But it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Ah, (laughs) there's the problem. On the inside, I'm the son of God, but on the outside, I'm that wretched old Bob Alexander. You see, on the inside, I'm everything that God wants, but I'm still stuck. I'm trapped. I am trapped in this old casement of filthy, vile flesh that gives me my problems every day of my life, and I'm stuck with it. And you wonder why, and I wonder why you would glorify in that today. Boy, there's only one thing I'm looking for, and that's the resurrection of this old piece of flesh to get that glorified body, and I'll be... You know what heaven is to me? Heaven to me is being in a place that for the rest of my life, eternity, that's pretty good, rest of my time, whatever I say, whatever I think, and whatever I do will only be pleasing to him. Now, that's what I'm looking for. I don't have that today. I wish I could say I did. I don't. And you don't either. But the only way you get to that point in your life is to not focus and fellowship with the things of the old Adam, but set your affections on the things with the new Adam and look what's coming. Something better is coming. Then he says this, but we know. Do we? (laughs) But we know. Do you? But we know, do I? But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That's the day I'm looking for. Now, I brought you up to those five points to give you the last one. Because the last one's the key. The last one's the key. And every man, point six. And every man that hope haveth this hope in him. You see, the hope of it's not this life. It's temporary. It's the next life. The hope that someday you're going to be glorified with him in a joint heir. Every man that hath this hope in him, here it comes, purifieth himself even as he is pure. 
You know what most pastors would tell you? <clears throat> you know why I go into such deep detail on Thursday night and sometimes on Sunday morning? You know why I don't ever shun away from most questions that you ask and I'll go take you down as deep as they are? In most churches with most pastors, if you would ask them a great deep question, uh, their answer to you would be that you as a Christian ought not to worry about things like that. That, uh, you know, you need to just worry about the things that are everyday life. And uh, then you shouldn't, you know, don't have to worry about studying those deep things in the Bible. Now, there's a reason why they tell you that. First reason is they don't know the answer. That's your first and foremost primary reason. Second one is they don't know the Bible. That Bible says that the very deep things about the resurrection body, <coughs> you see the things about what God's doing, the deep things, the millennium, the tribulation, and all those details, the Antichrist, the going into history and all that stuff. You know what that does? That just gets my mind off of what the old world is and show me the whole thing in a package, and that gets me, it purifies me even as I'm already pure. What does that mean? You're already pure because you're saved, but you've got to perfect yourself every day to stay pure. And the way you do that is to focus on what's coming not what's around you. Only way you can do it. Only way you can do it. In this life, if you don't learn to use the promises of what's coming, you'll never get through the struggles of what you're going through today. And you can write that down. I preached a funeral a couple of weeks ago. A couple of you were there. And I told this story at the end. I told this story how when I was a little kid, I used to love to go back to Maryland to my Aunt Nettie's. Aunt Nettie had married a man named Clyde. They're both dead. They had a daughter named Darlene. She's still alive. They lived in Frostburg, Maryland. My family are all coal miners. My grandpa was a coal miner. My uncle was a coal miner. And they worked in the coal mines of West Virginia and Maryland. And uh, they grew up in poverty. Most people would laugh at me when I say this, but my mom, my dad, my dad, and my dad was born and raised in a, in a little log cabin. And his mom and dad raised 11 children in that one-room log cabin. I saw it when I was just a little kid. They took me by it one time. And uh, my dad, my grandfather, that's how he died when, uh, when, when they were all very early, and, and that mom raised them all. And it was, it was incredible how 11 kids you know, lived in that little log cabin. No lights, no indoor plumbing, no nothing. It's, I used to hear him tell the stories. But I used to love to go back to Maryland, and I was just about nine or ten years old. And she was a great cook. And she would, when we would come there from Ohio, she would make some great stuff. And I always enjoyed eating. And I, my, my, my fondest, fondest childhood memories are thinking of back there, of going back there, and I love Maryland. Maryland to me was like the wild, wild west. And she'd put on these spreads, and she'd always do this. She'd bring the food in, and we'd eat, you know, and then she, she was very proper. She'd pick up all the plates, and, and she knew we loved coming there. And, so, and she was a sweetheart of a gal. And so she'd pick up all the plates, and she'd come over, and she'd say, now... Bobby, keep your fork because there's something good really coming. And I knew she made whoopie pies that would put you through the moon. <laughs> she was great, and I was never disappointed. And I thought about that years and years and years, and <clears throat> I told, <clears throat> when I die, when I die, there's a couple, only a couple of things I want. 
I hear I'm going to be cremated, so. <clears throat> but I'm telling everybody right now, when you walk by my casket and I'm laying in there, I want somebody to put a fork in my hand. Now, when they put a fork in my hand, most of you will probably be there if you don't die before me. Some of you look like you're halfway there now. <laughs> when people walk by and they look at that, me in that casket with that silly smirk on my face, holding that fork straight up, and they say to you, What's he holding a fork for? You tell them for me. The reason I'm holding a fork, because the best is yet to come. And there's something better coming after this life. This life isn't it. This life just appears to be it. The devil makes it look like it's it. He turns all the lights on, gets some sparkles, gets some diamonds, gets all the things going so you believe it's it. It's not it. Let me tell you something. Just like my Aunt Nettie used to say after the main course, keep your fork, Bob. There's something better coming. And there's something better coming, and it's him and your glorified, resurrected body. Someday we're going to, you've got to encourage yourself with those things. You've got to keep yourself. You've got to purify yourself every day, even as you're pure. If you don't learn to focus on the things that's coming, you're never going to come through what's coming tomorrow. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we do love you. And Lord, I, I understand these are all good people. Uh, Lord, all the idiots stayed home today. These are good people. And Lord, they, they want to do what's right. I really believe that there's probably maybe a few here that are just along for the ride. I, I, I don't know. But the ones that I know, the ones that I see, and the ones that I watch as they try to help me, I believe they want to do what's right. And Lord, I know that the struggles of this old world are tough. And Lord, I, I wouldn't berate anybody of the struggles they go through. Because Lord, I go through them too. And we all go through them. And that's just part of this life. But I, what I will tell them, Father, is what, and I want to emphasize what you spoke through me today, is the fact that, hey, it isn't about this life. You'll never get past the, the struggle. You'll never get past the flesh. You'll never get past the disappointment. You'll never get past the bad decisions. You'll never get past all of those things until you start focusing on what God has for us in the future and what's coming and get your focus off what's here today. And Lord, you've given us a great sermon today and a great message today of, of this great passage on the resurrection. And now we know that, that because Christ died, and he rose from the dead, and he's Lord of the dead and the living, and he's quickened us, and he wants to be the Lord of our life, that these things in the world don't have to have any control over us. It's us giving ourselves over to them when we don't have to. And that happens because we simply do not set our affections on things above. Right now we're hurting. Right now we're in a confession mode. Right now we're, we're saying to you in our hearts and our deepest secrets, Lord, he's right. I'm sorry. Help me, help me, help me. It isn't about right now. It's about when you walk out of here and 20 minutes from now the phone rings or you find something else to do or your old friends call you up and they drag you right back down into that pit. Help us. Help us to put off those things that we need to, that we might stand for those things that are worth standing for. And we'll thank you and praise you. 
In Jesus' name, bless all the activities today, the shower, the birthdays, and the homeless ministry tonight. And thank you for again for all the sweet people of this church who bring in food, bring in clothes, and labor to do this. And help us never to lose, the, after all you've given us, for us not to take just a little bit back and give to people who don't have for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them that they too might see, behold, how great and marvelous this salvation is. God, never let us lose that. Keep this church moving, growing, and keep this church focused on your coming back. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Take five minutes and do what you got to do. Pick up your shirts back there if you haven't got them. In five minutes, I want to meet all of the people that are going down to the homeless ministry tonight, right down here in front. Steve's crew need to meet him in the back, but I'm going to give you five minutes. You got uh, 25 till uh, 12. I want to meet you back down here. So please take care of that for me. God bless you. You're dismissed.